Me in John 15, where Charles read a few minutes ago, John 15, 12 through 17. We'll look at those verses and a few others in the last couple of chapters of, last few chapters of John. Glad you're here today. I'm glad we get to study together, to worship together. It's been beautiful singing and communion time with you. Ask a question at the beginning of this, you know, I wonder how the world perceives Christianity. There's no single answer to that. Um, probably you'd get a thousand different answers, perhaps, if you ask a thousand different people. I don't know, but I think it's something for us to think about. Uh, we, we live in a time where we're becoming increasingly, as a country, becoming increasingly secular, less religious, you know, less Christian, less overtly Christian, certainly. Churches have to think seriously about how we go about trying to share Christ with this postmodern world and increasingly secular place, you know. How, how are we going to how are we going to take the message we hold dear and make it relevant, make it appealing to people who need desperately to know Jesus Christ? How does the world think of Christianity today? I want us to wrestle with that a bit as we go through this. I know I've got my own thoughts here based, I hope, accurately on what Jesus says. And so we're going to kind of take a journey through John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, four or five chapters there. Not, not really through all of them, but some, some emphases that Jesus shares with us. What does the world think about Christianity? And, and, and really the question more directly is this. What should the world think of when they think of us? What should they think of? So... Let's, let's set the stage for this study. Um, we'll, we'll make our way to John 15 in a minute. But I, w- I want, first of all, first, just kind of set the, set the context here, where, where we are in John 15. Uh, this, John is kind of unique. If you've read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John a few times, you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover a lot of the same ground from different perspectives, different angles, <laughs> but a lot of the same material. They talk about a lot of the same miracles. They talk about a lot of the same parables, a lot of the same teachings of Jesus. And then you read John, and John's completely different. Uh, his, his gospel account covers different ground in so many ways. And one of those differences is this. On the Thursday night, all right, Jesus was crucified on Friday, you know. So on that Thursday night, the night before he died, John gives us a glimpse into some of the things that Jesus said that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. So I'm glad we've got John's account because we, we get to listen in. We get to we get to go with the disciples with Jesus, and we get to sit there kind of in the corner of the room, perhaps, and we get to, we get to witness some pretty cool things. <coughs> so Thursday night, one of the things that happens in John 13, one more thing about that. So John, John includes, John's got 21 chapters, you know, but his account of the last night and then Friday of Jesus' death it, it starts early on, and in John 13, you know, nine chapters before the end, eight, nine chapters before the end of the book, John takes us to that upper room. And um, that upper room, Jesus had gotten the disciples together, all 12 of the apostles, they had found this room, uh, upper room, and they observed the Passover meal together, which was a pretty important, very important Jewish feast that was observed once a year. And so they had that meal together, and we get to witness that. And John gives us some details of about it that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. And one of those details is that Jesus takes off that outer robe that, that a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi particularly, would wear, takes it off, wraps the towel around his waist, 
and uh, he starts washing their feet. Remember that story? That's John 13. We're not going to look at it, but I want you to just be aware. This is the same night that that's going on. Jesus washes the feet of all 12 of those guys. One of them was about to betray him. You know, one of them was Judas, who was about to go out into the darkness of the night and sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So he washes all 12 sets of feet, some discussion around that, gets to the end of it, and he says, you don't understand what in the world I'm doing for you right now, but you're about to understand. You're going to understand it later. In fact, they're going to understand it the next day. But it's a pretty neat story, isn't it? It's, it's like the last night in Jesus' life, he's trying to help his disciples see, I'm about to leave you guys. Uh, I'm, I'm about to leave. I'm going to send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live in you. But, but I'm about to leave you, and, and I want you to understand some very, very, very important things about how you're going to do ministry from here on out. You're going to do some pretty neat things, but you need to understand what it's all about. So he washes their feet on that Thursday night, and uh, he says, you're going to understand what I've done for you. That's an amazing story. I love that story. Because can you imagine God getting down on his knees and washing the feet of 12 guys who were too proud to do it themselves? I mean, it's just a mind-blowing story. Uh, God, God humbling himself in Jesus to wash dirty, nasty feet of these, of these men who were probably trying to figure out every way they could avoid doing it for the others. They would never do this because they're too proud at this point at least. So it's an amazing story. That's, that's Thursday night. <clears throat> now, after that, after that, Jesus, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, these, these chapters, for the most part, are additional words that Jesus said to them that we don't have anywhere else. And so, for example, you've got this in John 15, which is a chapter we're going to look at. The first part of John 15, you got a, a story or a parable that Jesus, an illustration Jesus uses. And he says, verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me. Here's the important thing I want you to get from this. <clears throat> Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Here's what I want you to see from this. <coughs> um, the theme of this Thursday night, this pivotal night for Jesus and the disciples is this. He says to them, you got to stay attached to me. You got to stay connected to me. The branches must be connected to the vine or else they're not going to produce fruit. And if they're connected to the vine, they will produce fruit. This is what it's going to be. I've washed your feet. You're going to wash other people's feet because you're connected to the vine. And branches do what the vine does. Branches produce the fruit that the vine produces. They are connected to him. And so I wash your feet. You're going to wash other people's feet because you're connected to the vine. It's just that important theme that goes through these last few chapters. And, and so I, don't, I just think it's pretty cool for you and me to sit here and think, okay, what should we be like? Everything Jesus said was, was important, but maybe, maybe we pay a little bit more, maybe we pay a little bit closer attention to what he said right before he died. Because it's like Jesus has one last night with these guys. And there's, if there's a theme that permeates those words, those, those prayers, the, what he said, what he did, if there's a theme that permeates that, it makes me think, ah, 
the church needs to listen to that message, you know, because he's got one last night with these men. And there's a theme that comes through over and over again. And that makes us think, ah, that must be important for the church today. If we're going to be connected to the vine, that must be what we must look like. Okay? Now, this is still Thursday night, all right? We haven't moved on chronologically. In fact, we're going we're gonna to end on Thursday night. But this is some stuff that he said. John 13, 34. We're skipping around a bit. This is going to sound pretty familiar to many of you, I'm guessing. John 13, listen to this. He says to them, he says, A new commandment I give to you, <clears throat> that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Uh, this, just Jesus wants them to know. It's, I don't know how to express how important I believe that this must be for Jesus to do this because he says it repeatedly and he, he's got these few hours with them and this theme comes up again and again and he says to them, right before he's going to die the next day, he says, look, I'm giving you a new command that you should love one another. Now that's not new. I mean, lots of places in the Bible say that. God said that in the Old Testament. You, you ought to love one another. So that's not new. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that's in Leviticus. So it's not a new command in that sense. But this is new. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Here it is. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's the new part. That's the new part. We are to love one another. And then Jesus says, you love one another as I have loved you, to, to that extent. And, and, and so... We, we, before this time, we don't have an example like this of God dying on the cross and saying, that's what love looks like. You love one another just like that. That's the newness of the command, right? Always expected to love, but you love one another like that. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Now, over, I know I'm skipping around here, but over, over to, our, to our text... John 15, 12. First verse that Charles read for us a bit ago. John 15, 12 says this. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. There it is again, that, that phrase at the end of it, which is crucial. That's why I titled the sermon that this morning. That you love one another. Well, nobody disagrees with that. I mean, everybody... I mean, most, most people believe that, right? That we ought to love one another. People who aren't followers of Jesus believe that. We ought to show love, you know? That's, everybody agrees with that. We ought to show love. But it's just fascinating that Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't, he doesn't let us stop with love one another. Because, you know, it's not that hard to love people who are good to you. You know, you love, I don't know, I don't know, family. You love them. You love your family. Love your kids, love mom and dad or siblings, spouse, whatever. You love, you love them, you know. You love your friends, the people you're close to, people who've treated you well and go way back. You know, you, you, you love those folks. Love people who love you back, that sort of thing. That, that comes pretty naturally. It comes pretty easy to most of us. We, we love them. We don't do it perfectly, but, but we instinctively love people like that. We love the people who are good to us. He doesn't let us stop there, though. That's easy kind of love. Everybody does that. He says, you love one another 
as I've loved you. Here's another thing. It's not so hard to love people as long as it's not too inconvenient. We even do this with people we love within our family. We, you know, I'm, I love you, sweetheart. I, I love you, son, daughter. I love you, but, but there are limits to that, maybe. I mean, selfishly, there, there might be some limits to that. I don't want to really sacrifice that much to, of myself in, in, in love. You know, there's, there's that limitation And so Jesus says, you love one another as I have loved you. In the same kind of context, he says, you love not only people who love you, but especially you love the people who don't love you, who don't treat you well, and you love them to this extent. You love them as I have loved you. This is a pretty big deal. Now, let's go back to my question I started with a few minutes ago. What does the world think of when they think of Christianity? I should say here at the beginning of this part of the discussion, we can't do anything about what the world thinks of Christianity in some sort of abstract sense. You know, we can't fix all the manifestations of Christianity in the world. I mean, you know, a third of the world's population identifies as Christian, something like that. And so we can't, we, I, don't, I don't have that much confidence in a body of believers here at Hoover that we can fix all of that. We, we can't, you know, we can't, to, to some extent, we can't worry about what the world thinks of Christianity on a global scale. But it is of concern to us, and we have to be aware of it. So I wonder, what does the world think of when it thinks of Christianity? Does it think of, let me give you some, let me give you some choices here. Does it think of our stances on certain moral issues? Now, I should say this. Should the church have stances on moral issues? I don't know how you can be a follower of Jesus and say no to that, right? Obviously, Christians take stances on moral issues, on, I don't know, whatever, matters of sexuality, matters of life and death. We take strong ethical and moral stances on things that Jesus is for, you know? We've got to do that. Does the, does the world think of Christianity as a voting block, perhaps? Certainly, some people would answer it that way. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, a segment of, American, of the American population that every candidate for any political, national political office needs to get at least a big part of the support, of their support, or else he or she can't get to that office, right? So there's a sense in which some people would look at Christianity as a voting block, you know? What does the world think of when the world thinks of Christianity? You know where I'm going with this, obviously, because Jesus says something repeatedly in the last night of his life, on the last night of his life. He washes their feet and he says, this is who you're going to be. This is who you're going to be. In, later in that chapter, uh, the, the same chapter where he washed their feet in John 13, I, I didn't read this verse earlier, but John 13, 34, this part I did read, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says this, by this all people will know, listen to this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. 
I dare say it ought to be the goal of this church to the extent that it is within our power as God's called out people in this community for us to do everything we can for people in Hoover, anybody who comes in contact with the Hoover Church of Christ, that this is what they're going to know. First, man, I don't know who those people are. I don't know what they believe. They may handle snakes for all I know. But I know this, they love one another. It seems to me that's what Jesus is saying. That when the world looks at you, the first thing that ought to come to mind is, man, those people, they love. They love because they are branches that are connected to the vine, and the vine's very nature is love. <coughs> it's like bookends here, because John 13 is the first chapter of this Thursday night. John 17 is the last chapter that talks about what Jesus said. And in, and in John 17, in that chapter, <clears throat> he says a lot of things. He's praying, actually. He's praying in the presence of his disciples. And listen to this, John 17, verse 20. All this flows with this idea of love. But he says, I did not ask for these only. He's praying to God, okay? But he says, I don't ask for these only, but also for, for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. So... He's praying for the apostles, and he's praying for those of us who are believers based on what we get from the apostles. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, so that you've sent me. <clears throat> you know what he's saying? He is saying that the world is going to be looking for something in Christians. And if it sees love that manifests itself in unity, then it is going to want to know more about the Jesus whom we profess. That's going to be the drawing power of Christianity. It is not, in any respect, making compromises on morality or ethics or any point of conviction from the teachings of Jesus, right? But the drawing power of Christianity seems to be from the last night of Jesus' life as he's charging these guys and saying, this is the message you're going to take. Wash one another's feet. The world's going to see that. Love one another like I've loved you. The world's going to see that. Be united. Put the needs of others before your own. And the world is going to see that. And they're going to say, I wonder who in the world is this Jesus? Madeline Lingle, who passed away about 13 years ago, a writer of young adult fiction. I posted this on my Facebook page last night. Some of you may have seen it. She wrote, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. I think that's a pretty powerful statement, you know? Showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. It's like, I think she's right in this, that, that Christians, we are connected to the vine, and so we reflect that light that's in Him. And the world sees that. 
And they are drawn to that. What in the world? Who are these people? What motivates them? Why do they serve like that? Why do they get out in the community and do what they do? Why do they do that? And by the way, I should stop here and say that I think <clears throat> I've heard things from people in our community about this church, and it's good stuff, you know? It's good stuff. I think there are people, a lot of people in our community because of various outreach projects that you guys have done, that people in our community, they may not know what goes on inside these walls yet. I hope they will. Some of them have come. Some of them know. But some of them don't know yet. But here they, here's one thing they do know. Those folks at the Hoover Church of Christ, they've got a light in them. And I'd like to know what the source of that light is. That draws people to Christ, you know. That's what it does. Tertullian, you may have heard the name of Tertullian. He was an early Christian, second century believer, follower of Christ. North Africa, Christianity had spread, of course, by that time and was growing tremendously in the second century in the midst of persecution. It's fascinating, always fascinated me how the church has grown in times of persecution so rapidly and oftentimes when it's not being persecuted like it's not here in America, not really, not overtly. Um, it often doesn't grow. In fact, Christianity, you know, in our own country is declining. But anyway, first couple of centuries, Christianity was being persecuted like crazy. They were killing them, burning them at the stake, crucifying them, all sorts of things. And yet the church was growing. Tertullian was, was one of these Christians in the face of persecution. And he's, he, do, he does a lot of writing. We have a lot of what Tertullian wrote. But there's one particular section of something he writes. Now, this translation may be a little clunky. I don't know. But just listen to it. He says, he's talking about Christians, okay? And he's writing as a Christian, but he's, he's trying to think. They, they're called apologists because they, they give defenses of Christianity to their unbelieving world. But anyway, he says this. On the monthly day, if he likes, each puts in a small donation. He's talking about Christians. Each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure and only if he be able, for there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund, for they are not taken thence and spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses. I guess an eating house is a restaurant but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons, for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession." But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. Now, he's, he's talking about people and what they're saying about Christianity. Mainly, it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. For themselves are animated by mutual hatred how they are ready even to die for one another, for they themselves will sooner be put to death. Now, again, the language, I know 
maybe a little bit antiquated, but I hope you got the message of Tertullian. He's simply saying, he's talking about Christianity in the, in the face of a world that hated Christianity in so many ways, was persecuting Christians. But he says, you know what? Here's what they're saying about us. They don't know what to do with us. It's making them angry because they can't explain it. And what they can't explain about these Christians is that in the face of being put to death, they keep on loving one another. They give their money to take care of children without parents. They take care of the old folks who are confined to the home. Instead of they're wasting their money on drinking bouts and eating houses, they use their money to care for those who are infirmed. They will go and those who are in prisons and they will care for them. They'll bring them what they need. And the world looks at that, Tertullian says, the world looks at Christians and they say, man, how those people love one another. Isn't that beautiful? That's how the church grows. How did the church grow in a time of persecution? It's because in the face of that, the world could not explain where that light came from. And so when they saw the love and they saw the foot washing, they saw the service, they said, what is the source of that light? Because we don't have it. We don't have it. And as they got closer, they realized that the source of that light was the vine. The source of that light was Jesus Christ. And the church grew because the world, when it thought of Christianity... It thought of love for one another. It seems to me like the church of Tertullian's day understood what Jesus is teaching us on the last night of his life. As I have loved you, love one another. Thursday night, he washes feet, he teaches the disciples, he prays for them in their presence. Later that night, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's betrayed by Judas, of course, arrested by the Roman soldiers, taken that night to Annas and Caiaphas, two of the religious leaders of his day. About daylight the next morning, he's taken before Pilate, and over the course of the next number of hours, you know what happened to Jesus. He stretched out his hands on the cross, and he died for the disciples, and he died for the world. And my guess is... I know this. For the rest of their lives, they never forgot what he taught them a few hours before. When he washed feet and when he taught them about service and love, and he said, this is what the world is going to know about you, that you serve and that you love one another. And they thought, you know they did, they connected what he had just done, as I have loved you. Maybe on Thursday night, they didn't know exactly what that meant. Oh, they knew Jesus loved them, but they didn't know it like they're going to know it. On Friday afternoon, and in the coming days as they reflected on the crucifixion of Jesus, you know they connected what he had said on Thursday night with what he did on Friday, and that is, this is as I have loved you. You love other people like that. You do that. And the world is going to ask, what is the source of that light? What's the source of that light? If you're here today, maybe as someone who's not a Christian, I, I hope what's drawn you, 
I hope what's drawn you to this place today is you want to know the source of the light. We'll tell you what the source of the light is, not us. Uh, we got our own problems, you know. We got our own struggles. But we follow the light, and we try our best to reflect that light to the world, to the community around us. And it is this church who's trying to stand with him, to stand behind him, as it were, and to project him to the world. And we hope that you're drawn to that light. And if you are, that you'll come and you will become a follower of Jesus. You'll become a part of that light. And you will be, you have been invited by him to come into fellowship with him, to be baptized into him for the forgiveness of your sins, to be a recipient of the gift of the Spirit so that the Spirit might shine that light through you. If you're ready to become a Christian today, you can do that today. And um, we would be thrilled to be a part of that with you. Maybe you need to come back. You've, you've obeyed the gospel. You became a Christian some time ago, but your life has not reflected the light. <clears throat> it's, easy, it's easy for that to happen to us, you know. Your life hasn't reflected the light anymore, and you want to come back once again. We will pray for you today. Let's stand and sing. If you need to come, I hope you will.